Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This is the last episode of this podcast for 2022, and I can't think of any better way to end the year than talking with Avi Asher Shapiro, a journalist whose work I admire, recounting some of the biggest stories he and his colleagues covered in 2022 and looking ahead to what may make headlines in 2023 at the intersection of technology and society. We delve into headlines and topics ranging from surveillance to crypto to social media to tech policy. Here's Avi. My name is Avi Asher Shapiro. I report on technology for the Thompson Reuters Foundation. So Avi, you've published dozens of stories this year, often sharing a byline with your colleagues there. You've written about the ways in which digital evidence is used to persecute LGBTQ people in the Middle East, the plight of Amazon delivery workers crushed by heatwave in California, desperate for an easing of algorithmic performance metrics. Listeners to Tech Policy Press may also remember we had your colleague, uh, Diana Baptista, on to discuss a story the two of you did on scam loan apps in Mexico that are thriving in the Google Play Store. It's fair to say you have a pretty global beat studying the intersection of tech and society. How would you characterize it? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that there's a sort of paradox at the heart of the technology beat, which is that we have more kind of critical reporters than ever covering tech, which is amazing. When I first got into this, there were very few, but we have such an expansive, you know, attack surface that we miss more stories than ever, right? In, in the stories and about the, you know, how the gig economy operates in West Africa or how loan apps operate in Mexico. I mean, there's just so many stories. So I think what I try to do, taking advantage of the fact that I work in a global newsroom and we have reporters all over the world, really strong reporters all over the world, is is try to find blank space where I can. And, and there is, thankfully, a lot of blank space, even though the tech journalism scene is, I think, stronger than ever. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of the more significant articles you've published this year. I give my listeners essentially a sort of survey of some of your work. Your story headlines, uh, while they are kind of looking perhaps in unexpected places, they do tie uh, to some of the bigger stories of the year. You've written about the fallout for Ukrainian tech workers from the Russian invasion uh, earlier this year, for instance. And in June, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned its prior ruling in Roe v. Wade which led to the criminalization of abortion in a substantial number of states. And you wrote about this story uh, from more than one angle, but the first uh, about the degree to which digital footprints of those seeking reproductive health care might be used against them. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Dobbs decision was an incredible moment for the surveillance beat. You know, it was a moment where all of these things that we knew about the way that our online and offline activity was so leaky from, you know, the locations we were at from Google leaking from Google logging where, you know, where we go on maps to healthcare apps interacting with each other and selling our information to, you know, ad networks, all of this stuff sort of like had an inflection point when it came to the Dobbs decision was, you know, none of it was really new, but it, it gave this new urgent way of framing these long term challenges. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it was a really useful moment. I mean, you, you saw just this couple of weeks ago, the markup had this amazing story where they just showed how the, all these different like 
apps that are supposed to help you with like online healthcare, these telehealth health apps. It's the wild west of sharing people's health information, I think. And, and they did an amazing like technical analysis showing that, you know, if you go and try to get a prescription online, like that could leak easily to an ad network, even though we're supposed to have laws that prevent that from happening. And I think part of that is the long tail of this Dobbs moment where, you know, reporters and the public started to realize like what happens when you have this thing that like a huge part of the country thinks is routine healthcare become illegal in a bunch of different chunks of the country. And then you have to start asking yourself these questions about what kind of evidence could be surfaced against people there. And then these quotidian things like your Google history or, you know, what kind of period tracker apps you use kind of come into play. So yeah, I, I thought it was a really interesting moment. I looked at it from that angle where I kind of spoke about, you know, the rise of geofence warrants and like all the different ways that law enforcement can, in theory, get access to people's uh, search histories and also their location histories that could potentially come into play uh, in abortion related cases. But also I looked at like another very kind of quotidian type of surveillance, which is the rise of ankle monitors, which is a, a super uh, kind of slow burning, but a huge story in this country where we have thousands and thousands of people who are kind of confined to these ankle monitoring devices. It's a huge business. It's a private industry. And it's people who are on parole. It's also people who are in immigration detention. And basically they have, uh, you know, they're forced to sort of restrict their movement and they have a you know constant beacon telling uh, authorities where they are. And, and a lot of these people are women and a lot of these people get pregnant. And so I went, I, I, you know, I spoke to folks in that world about you know, the nightmare that it it will be for, you know, a woman on uh, immigration detention or parole in Mississippi who gets pregnant and is wearing an ankle tracker and is going to have to decide between, you know, she steps across the state line from reoffending or being forced to take a pregnancy to term that is unwanted. And so I, and I think, as I said, I think the abortion story allowed uh, reporters to frame a lot of surveillance stories that were ongoing, like these ankle monitors, like the leaking of healthcare information in a new way, in a new urgent way. And that, that was a big theme this year. One of the things that from both those stories I kind of take to some extent is the sense that maybe we're at a kind of divergence on the road in different states in the United States, where some will put in place protections against the type of surveillance that you're talking about and uh, perhaps protect sensitive data related to pregnancy, uh, whereas others seem to be building incentives to exploit that information along with the criminalization of abortion. I think that's right. And I, I spoke to some lawyers about this when I was reporting on earlier this year. I think there's a lot of collision points coming. There's a good piece, and I think it's a, a New York University Law Review article that looks at what happens if all of these uh, state laws sort of collide where you have one state that is, you know, that's barring companies from sharing data across state lines for abortion related or pregnancy related prosecution. And then you have another one demanding it. You know, we're definitely in the early days here. I mean, the legal structures are just being built. The rail lines are just being laid. And when you have states at loggerheads over this kind of issue, there will be battles over data. And I think they will be really interesting and, and new precedents could be could be formed in terms of how different states imperatives intersect with data privacy. And I, yeah, I think that'll be something that we're, yeah, we're just seeing the beginning of. So another story to watch for 2023 and beyond. You also hit this year hit the crypto beat uh, really hard, which, you know, in my view, the skepticism that you brought to it, I think is appropriate, especially given where we're ending the year with the collapse of FTX and various criminal charges being brought against uh, the, the folks involved in FTX and Alameda Research. Tell me a little bit about how you think about covering crypto, and then we'll get into some of the specifics of the stories. 
I, I'm fascinated by the crypto story. I have been for a number of years. It has everything, you know, it has idealism, it has utopia, it has scammers, it has revolutionaries. But at the same time, it's kind of hard to get your arms around. So much of it occurs online, so, of it, so much of it occurs outside of the real world. So, I mean, my kind of imperative of trying to report on it was trying to find kind of the pointy edge of the stick where there were actual physical things happening with crypto. And so part of that was getting really into Bitcoin mining. You know, I did a number of long pieces on Bitcoin mining because these are physical things you can see. These are kind of roughneck entrepreneurs who are harnessing power grids and computers and, you know, really out there in the real world doing something with crypto. Um, and, and then part of that was trying to actually kind of look at, like, I spent a lot of last year trying to find, like, what is an actual, you know, there's this line, like, crypto is a solution in search of a problem, right? That And, and I spent a lot of time last year trying to figure out, okay, like, let's find one of these problems that crypto is actually sort of tilting at in a real way and like really look into it. So that led to like a, a six month long investigation with my colleague in Brazil, looking at these efforts to take carbon markets, which are supposed to be, you know, offsets for pollution and yoke them to the crypto markets. And we spent like six months looking at this industry and he, my colleague went to like the far reaches of the Amazon trying to track down the tentacles of this thing. So I think that that was sort of my way of trying to look at this. Fun thing about crypto is, you know, there's actually a pretty well-oiled crypto press that's pretty good. You know, there's Coindesk, there's The Block. There's a lot of places that are like covering it as like an everyday story. They have a lot of really good reporters and they do a lot of good work. What's missing often is sort of really in-depth stories with international legs that can kind of yoke together real people and the what what these like you know these different uh schemes are up to so that, that's what i tried to do this past year and it took me to appalachian bitcoin mines to bitcoin solar mines and you know far west texas and took my colleague to the far reaches of the amazon and my other colleagues sort of to the uh, universities in nigeria where students were being enlisted to to hot crypto so it was it was a, a really interesting year to look at the long tentacles of the, of the crypto industry Let's focus a little bit on Brazil um, and a couple of the stories there. Uh, you looked at the global carbon emissions trading system and how people are uh, attempting to kind of use digital tokens uh, to, you know, turn that into perhaps, well, in their hope, a more efficient system. What did you find there? You compared it to the subprime mortgage market. It's a complicated story, but I think the basics of it are there is this market that exists, which is to try to incentivize. It already exists. It existed before crypto, which was to try to incentivize people to do certain ecologically beneficial things like not cut down a forest or start a green power plant. A way of financing this was to force or encourage you know, emitting uh, folks like airlines or power plants to pay somebody else, you know, in order to do that activity. And so there's basically a credit market that exists, which is like, you can claim like I saved this acre of forest and then an airline will give you some money. And then they can say, I too was involved in saving this acre of forest. And this, this has existed, you know, since the Kyoto protocol. And there's a million different kinds of markets that exist for this. Some are like regulated by government. Some are just like you know, totally voluntary for PR. I would say one of the major real world problems that that Web3 and crypto people have said they could solve 
was to try to make these markets, you know, much more efficient and much bigger and make them sort of fully integrated so that you could, you know, ideally like, you know, when you're online and let's say you're buying an Amazon package, you could seamlessly sort of direct some money to a token that was linked to something that was like saving the rainforest. And it could all be this one integrated system where we've locked in climate finance to our everyday activities. And so so that's sort of the dream. And what we did was we looked at one specific Brazilian company, which was actually the first company to try this, the first green digital asset, which was called Moss. And what they did is they basically bought a bunch of these carbon credits from projects all over the Amazon. Basically, they bought them up and then they put them on the blockchain and said, hey, like these are now fungible digital credits. Everyone can get in on this. We went and took them you know, from the real world and we put, put them on the blockchain. And the long and short of it is when we spent like months and months trying to figure out the actual materiality of these individual credits, we found, you know, a bunch of them were not what they claimed they were. You know, they were the credit was supposed to be linked to, say, helping start a green forestry initiative in a you know far flung Brazilian town. Well, my colleague Fabio went to the town. There's no school. There's no initiative. Right. And these kinds of problems have plagued carbon markets from the beginning. Right. It's really hard to verify what's going on in the middle of the Amazon, you know, it, they didn't create these problems. But the point was that the, you know, the Web3, the crypto notion that we're going to fix uh, this problem with carbon markets, are going to make it totally, truly global and huge and international. Like they weren't able to fix anything, right? They just recreated many of the problems that existed in the markets before. So it, it sounds kind of like a simple story, but to prove it, was like so hard because we had to go like dive deep into these archives and these registries and really try to identify the sort of life cycle of one of these credits. It starts in the middle of nowhere and ends up in the wallet of some crypto trader in the US. A related story also from Brazil, which perhaps came out of your reporting there, NFTs st- uh, from stolen land in the Amazon, this entity uh, Nemus. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this was a story I, I did with my colleague Andre, uh, and I have to give him uh, most of the credit for this. But you know, it goes back to why crypto is such an interesting area to cover because there are a lot of idealists in this space. I'm not putting myself in judgment of people's intentions, but I do feel like there are a lot of true idealists in this space, and, and I think one of and a lot of environmentalists in this space. I think that's an interesting wrinkle on this. And so this was a uh, something that my my colleague Andre noticed, which is that. You know, this company was selling. Yeah, I don't. Now it sounds so silly, but all but six months ago, people were saying NFTs were going to change the world. <laughs> so if you can cast your mind back to that moment where uh, everyone, Coca Cola was making NFTs and the NBA was making NFTs, and we all thought they were going to change the world, there was a company that was, you know, basically selling NFTs of of land in the middle of the Amazon that they had said they had secured and saved from deforestation, and that you too, as a you know, environmentally conscious person living in in New York or San Francisco could buy your own, your own, you know, non-fungible tradable. It was actually like a trading card that they drew that would represent the preservation of this land. So, but it wasn't hard for my colleague, Andre, who's a crack kind of Brazilian investigative reporter, who's very familiar with land ownership records in Brazil to recognize that this land was disputed. And this was, you know, there's indigenous people on this land who who wanted nothing to do with this project. And the Brazilian authorities were actually looking into it. And this is a, still an ongoing story that the, the control of this land is very much up in the air, which is kind of the theme, I think, of all of this reporting is that like the crypto stuff tends to just inject more energy or more motion into pre-existing conflicts and problems. And the solutions I mean, beyond some remittance stuff, it's pretty hard to find them in the real world. 
you mentioned your feature on uh, low carbon Bitcoin in Texas on the idea uh, of kind of solar or uh, I suppose renewable uh, Bitcoin mining reporting on a firm called Lancium. And you kind of, I suppose, bring it close to where I live uh, with a feature on an environmentalist versus Bitcoin that focuses quite a lot on New York. Yeah. I mean, so this was a really interesting year where the environmental movement really got its dukes up about Bitcoin mining in a real interesting way. I mean, so Bitcoin mining, right, requires computing power. They plug into electrical grids or they create their own electricity and it can be in the, you know, multi gigawatt zone. So it can be, you know, as, you know, as much as a small city or a large, you know, a large population center, you know, a Bitcoin mine, even a small Bitcoin, small ish Bitcoin mine of like, you know, 30, 40 megawatts can be the size of a small town in terms of its energy consumption. So so the environmental movement got its dukes up in a big way this past year in a couple of ways, like Greenpeace and a couple other movements are uh, sort of uh, legacy environmental organizations started launching these public campaigns that were very critical of Bitcoin mining. You also had this effort in New York state where Anna Kellis, who's a member of the of the, of the, of the house, put forward these moratorium proposals to try to block certain kinds of Bitcoin mining in New York state. And this all had come to a head around this hedge fund owned Bitcoin mine in Greenwich and up uh, called Greenwich Generation, which is up in the Finger Lakes, which had resurrected this old coal plant and was using it to mine Bitcoin. And so this was a kind of a fight that was brewing all year. Eventually, the governor of New York signed into law, I think just a couple of weeks ago, this moratorium proposal, which blocks uh, certain kinds of Bitcoin mining that rely on fossil fuel power. Uh, but beyond that, you know, there's Greenpeace and, and others have been throwing punches at, at Bitcoin miners all over the country. They've released reports trying to show the carbon impact of the industry. And, and miners, I think, are kind of we're taking kind of by surprise, you know, because although they do use a significant amount of electricity, you know, they are not a huge industry and they're actually now an industry in distress. You know, uh, the, one of the largest Bitcoin miners in the country just filed for bankruptcy this week. So they were kind of on their back heels there's a sort of strain within Bitcoin mining that says, hey, we can actually like use renewable energy, we can be good for the environment. So I went out to Texas to look at some of those proposals. But again, it's just a fascinating place where like crypto meets the real world, like where energy grids collide with Bitcoin mining, where millions of dollars are at stake, where communities, there are battles over these kind of building of these infrastructure and communities. So for me, it's a, a fascinating place to get a taste of, of the way that the crypto industry can actually change the political economy of a real place. So I want to come back to the most recent story you've had, which also focuses on crypto. One thing that's common of, I think, a lot of these crypto companies, crypto schemes around the world has been the hiring of ambassadors or individuals that kind of, you know, inform different communities or and otherwise kind of serve as a, a human scaffolding for uh, the propagation of digital currency or, uh, you know, other aspects of the business models of these companies. On this podcast, we talked about WorldCoin, you know, earlier this year. Uh, but you look at a particular uh, company and collapse of in effort in Nigeria and the student ambassadors that that company had essentially enlisted and how they were left in the lurch. Yeah, so that's something we just did this past week. My colleague Buki and I, who's based in Lagos, I mean, basically after the FTX collapse a couple of weeks ago, you know, when I think the second largest crypto exchange in the world, FTX, was revealed to be basically running some sort of shell game with their hedge fund 
uh, where they didn't actually have enough money to honor the withdrawals and just and went, went into bankruptcy. And then, you know, the, the, the CEO has now been arrested and it's a whole imbroglio. And this has caused a contagion in the world of crypto and a number of other exchanges have frozen their withdrawals or they were too exposed to this other exchange. And so, you know, that started led us to this question of like, who is harmed most by this kind of collapse, right? And I think there's been a lot of emphasis on the sort of like, courtroom drama of like the leadership of FTX and like the guy SBF who runs it, who's like, you know, a fascinating and kind of strange and distasteful figure. But there's been like a relatively small amount of interest in like the downward forces, like who is actually left holding the bag here. And what we found was that, you know, not only FTX, but another major exchange of failed AAX had put a lot of energy into West Africa and in Nigeria in particular, where you have a kind of natural base of folks who don't trust the financial system and the banking system and, you know, are looking, you know, for good reason and are looking for alternative entry ways into finance. There were these programs that were set up that really just resemble multi-level marketing schemes. If you look at them, we've gotten documents and training guides from inside of these programs that FTX and AAX ran, you know, which are basically just going to kids, like 19-year-olds who are idealistic, who have you know heard about crypto, think it looks cool, think it's look interesting, and telling them to recruit their friends and their family and their churches and their colleagues to put like a certain amount of money into these exchanges and start trading, and they got rewarded for doing it. And you know they're they're like you know, it's like door to door selling knives or whatever, but it's crypto. And when the when the when the music stopped, their money was was stuck. And and we, we talked to a bunch of kids who are basically like you know their lives are ruined, like they've induced their friends to put their life savings into these accounts that have now disappeared. And people are afraid. Some people have even gone into hiding, been arrested because there's the entity that induced them to do this is like in bankruptcy proceedings in the Bahamas. But meanwhile, the like 19 year old or 22 year old Nigerian student who was the public face of this effort at their little regional university in Nigeria is like left holding the back. And, you know, it was a really tough kind of or frustrating story to report, honestly, because the folks that we spoke to, I mean, you know, this is the idealism I mentioned earlier. I mean, they, I, if you're a 19 or 20 year old student and you're interested in tech and you're interested in finance, like the hot new thing is like crypto. Like, why wouldn't you get interested in this? Like, you know, you can't expect everyone to have like an incredibly well-honed bullshit dar. I mean, people should be should be encouraged to experiment and try out new things. But it's now these are people who, who you know, lives might be ruined because um, they were enlisted as foot soldiers in this in this kind of pump and dump scheme or this. Uh, and, and so anyway, we, we put out that story just this morning. And I think it's in just an important corrective that, I mean, obviously there's a lot of interesting stuff to be said about the bankruptcy proceedings and the sort of weird sex cult or whatever the hell was going on in the Bahamas with these kind of, you know, American uh, wonderkins who who spun up this this scheme. But there's, there's, there's also important stories to be told about the people on the, on the edges here. You have a quote from Elijah, 22, uh, who says a student at Ignatius, a Juru University in Southern Nigeria. When I look at my phone, there is someone threatening to harm me if I don't refund their money. I sold a piece of land, even my bed, all I bought with the money I made from crypto to pay people, it is still not enough. So I suppose while the headlines are about uh, Sam Bankman Freed and the change in his circumstances, we can think of Elijah as well. Yeah, absolutely. And unlike Sam Bankman Freed, I mean, I think someone like Elijah's motivations were, I mean, I can't peer into his head, but likely pretty pure. Uh, I didn't speak to him. My colleagues spoke to him, but I, I, I would imagine that he's someone who 
many of these people who I did speak to, yeah, they're just like young kids who were excited about something and they trusted these exchanges and these kind of fancy foreign entities to be somewhat responsible. Yeah, I mean, once again, kind of left, left holding the bag. I want to look ahead a little bit to 2023 and what's on your radar. Uh, what are the stories you're already working on to the extent that you can give us a little preview? What stories do we think will uh, achieve the height of their narrative arc in 2023? I'm not sure. So I saw, you know, I was really interested to read this AP story that came out this week where they had put like a team of reporters on covering COVID era surveillance. I don't know if you saw this, Justin. It was a very I did. Uh, Garance Burke, and, uh, who's also been on the podcast in, in the past and her colleagues. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I thought it was a really interesting idea. They had sort of charted the, uh, you know, there was all of this, all any of us who cover surveillance issues, you know, remembered at the beginning of the pandemic that if you called up any of the sort of like digital uh, rights or privacy oriented groups, they were all sort of trying to cast this interesting pose, but they're like, we're serious about COVID. We don't want COVID, but also like maybe some of these new tracking and surveillance stuff that's being rolled out. You know, there was the stuff about the phone apps. There's sort of like, you know, they, they, there was the use of advertising IDs to track like flows of humans in Italy. There's all these sort of things that happened at the beginning of the pandemic, all these new surveillance powers that public health authorities were grabbing for. And you know, there was this question of like, is this going to you know, rear its head. I I thought that was a really interesting story of trying to basically follow an arc of something over a long term. I think we're going to see more of that come to a head over the next year as, you know, basically looking at on the tech beat in particular, looking at some of the implications of like the sensor, the, the surveillance apparatus that was built around COVID to see where that starts peeking out its head. I have to say, I was surprised in the story how little they were able to get on the U.S. You know, they had some pretty scary stories from China and Israel, uh, which stood out to me. Uh, but in the U.S., it was a bit vague, like how uh, how if, if authorities had been able to get their hands on surveillance data that had been collected for COVID information and misuse it in some other way. There was some like ingestion of data that seemed kind of inappropriate, but it was pretty embryonic, I think. So I think I, I'm interested to see where that where that goes for sure. I think... For me, I'm interested in some of these infrastructure stories that I've explored in the past. You know, we're seeing as, you know, not not just with Bitcoin mining winding down and that industry sort of imploding, but also like with there's been a pullback in, in the logistics industry, a slowdown of building of warehouses and stuff. I did a lot of reporting this past year or some reporting this past year looking at, you know, Amazon and the footprint of their logistics industry, these areas that have been completely dominated by warehouses. And I think we're we're seeing like a number of like, post-pandemic pullbacks of the e-commerce industry. And I'm definitely interested to see how that rebounds in communities that sort of have gone all in on warehousing or on all in on e-commerce. I'm working on something that I can't talk a lot about at the moment. That's kind of a long-term project on about surveillance as well, like in the, especially how surveillance is built up in small and medium-sized towns, which is, I think, not something people have looked at. It's it, I'm not going to talk more about it, but it's a project that I'm excited about. Let's see what else. What else is happening in this next year? I mean, I don't. I mean, I was like, I don't know, Justin. I you you follow the policy stuff more than me, but I was surprised at like I was looking back at like the archive of your website, like going back a year ago in January, and there was like a lot of pieces that were sort of like wondering aloud about what kinds of legislation might be coming down the pike, you know, in terms of social media regs or privacy regs or antitrust regs or all these things. And now we're here at the end of the year 
all of that stuff got purged from the omnibus bill, basically, right? So, I mean, I could say, oh, I'm interested to see how the tech lash is like is like translated into real teeth in, in legislation or regulation, but I feel like it's kind of a groundhog day with that. I don't know with that sensation. I am interested in looking at some of the other ways that big tech might be reined in, given that we seem to be unable at the national level to do almost anything. I had done a piece earlier in the year, which was looking at state level tech regs, like kind of going state by state. And I mean, almost all of those failed too. There's an interesting one in California, the Age Appropriate Design Act, which actually made it through, who will be, which is now seeking, I get there's a major court challenge, but, you know, one embryonic attempt to try to force tech companies to make some design decisions around uh, products used by children. I am interested in how the plaintiff's bar is going to take up this issue going forward in a big way. I've been working on something around that. I think that if, uh, yeah, I think that if our our, our legislature and is kind of un, unable to come up with slightly tweaked rules of the road for especially social media, the other shoe is going to have to drop somewhere. There are some state AG investigations that are supposedly percolating. You know, obviously the FTC is doing what it can in its sandbox, which is not particularly large, but I'm also interested to see, you know, you know, how some of these big lawsuits settle. You know, there's the Supreme Court case around 2.30, Gonzalez v. Google, that is going to be really interesting to watch if the Supreme Court does poke a hole in 2.30 around algorithmic recommendations. I think we're going to see a lot of really interesting stuff verbal forward that's going to be really interesting to watch in terms of like lawsuits against tech companies for for stuff they've recommended, which have been held at bay by 2.30. That's a real dump of random ideas in my brain. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's, I just kind of went through what I was was on my mind there. Not at all. And I will just uh, direct my listeners also to a report from uh, UNC uh, Tech Policy uh, Center, the state of state platform regulation. Mm. But Jay Scott, Babwa Brennan, and Matt Peralt um, that focuses specifically on what to expect from state-led development of tech policy in the United States. They argue that essentially, you know, kind of in line with what you just said, that the developments in state legislatures are likely to lead change and reform in the tech sector in the next couple of years, identifying, I think, exactly the issue that you've raised here, which is that, you know, even in a Congress that was controlled by Democrats, uh, nothing happened. And perhaps, uh, you know, in a divided Congress, we will see, you know, even less activity, perhaps at the federal level, at least in the legislature. Um, right. So- and it's wild to contrast what's happening in the EU, right? Like, meanwhile, in the EU, they're like hammering out all these very like specific there. I mean, I haven't followed it. I'm not, I don't report that much on Europe, but like I try to follow sort of like this past year, there was the AI regulations, you know, the Digital Service Act. I mean, say what you and I know they're, they're very controversial and some people say they're bad law or they're bad regs. Some people say they're great. I mean, maybe no one says they're great. Some people probably say they're OK. But just to contrast, like how much uh, regulatory activity I mean, you had in, in the you also had in the UK, you know, you had this duty of care thing that's kind of moving forward. You have all of these at least attempts in Europe to like move beyond the one yard line. <laughs> on a lot of these issues. And I, I mean, I, I think there's probably good arguments to be made that some of these some of these attempts are bad. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to endorse any of them, but it's just interesting to watch how tied up our, 
our system is and when compared to Europe. And I think, you know, there are people here in the US who are probably thrilled about that. I mean, there was a good story. I, I, I mean, I saw some criticism of it, but whatever. A story that I thought was good in Bloomberg the other day, which was looking at all of the uh, folks who came out and worked together to block you know, the, the antitrust proposal from being in the omnibus bill. And they, you know, described this uh, lobbying effort that yoked together Republicans and Democrats and academics and like civil liberties groups. Everyone could find some gripe in the regulation. And it, you know, the force was such, and also the companies, obviously, and the force was, was too much to bear, you know, for Congress. And they basically jettisoned it. And I think that there's something about our system that is making it difficult to get past the one yard line. And you might say that's a good thing. I mean, I think that there are definitely some some folks who who think it is a good thing, but it is an interesting divergence that you know goes back to the GDPR and, and beyond. But we're seeing that two paths taken in a really interesting way right now. And I guess that's a goal I think I would like to do more of in the next year is to really sink into some of these uh, European regulations and understand how real they are, especially around AI. You know, I mean, there this past year there was a lot of the. Um, yeah, the new rules coming down around the different levels of, of of risk that different AI systems pose in the EU and the way that the different kinds of disclosures they have to make to regulators and the amount of uh, yeah, fascinating attempt to try to like rein in this this monster. And I, I'm super curious to see how that plays out. And that story you referenced uh, by Emily uh, Birnbaum, big tech divided and conquered to block key bipartisan bills. Uh, really does lay out the lobbying effort. I mean, as you say, there were some individuals who pushed back on the story who said, you know, we had legitimate, uh, legal, you know, intellectually grounded reasons to oppose these bills that had nothing to do with uh, any affiliation or funding from big tech. So certainly there were critics out there that weren't part of this particular push. But um, nevertheless, I mean, it is another example of the kind of lobbying apparatus coming together to quash something that big tech uh, roundly felt was threatening. Yeah, you ahead. see this in how tech policy is crafted. I mean, it's fascinating. I'm not a tech policy reporter, but I do think now that <laughs> that's the name of the podcast. And I am interested just as a reader, kind of like, I'm super interested in this because I know, like I spent a lot of time talking to these like internet scholars or, you know, folks at civil society groups. And like, I know that a lot of them have a lot of legitimate grievances when they see a, a, a piece of legislation rolled out, they'll read it and they'll see unintended consequences, they'll see blowback, they'll predict ways that it will rebound to, you know, vulnerable users in, in, in ways that, you know, that reg was not intended. But there is also like a, you know, art or a genius to the, the companies in finding ways to sort of take those criticisms that may be legitimate, yoke them to other criticisms, and then block anything, right? And, and, and find a way to sort of jam up the political system in such a way that legitimate criticisms are mixed in with illegitimate criticisms. And the end result is just that nothing happens at all, right? And I, I think that that is, uh, you can't, we can't deny that that's been the end result of these processes. And I, I don't, you know, so it's been, I don't know, I, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what next year we'll, we'll bring on that, but I think I'll, I'll, I'll try to pay some attention. <laughs> Well, and just to connect it to your reporting, I mean, one thing that I hear when I talk to people outside of uh, the West, um, certainly in Africa, in Indonesia, in you know Latin America, many of them are saying, please do something in the United States. Your laissez-faire approach is allowing a lot of these externalities to boil over and it's hurting us more than it's hurting you. Um, and that that's a, a kind of common refrain, something that I've heard 
uh, talking to people from Maria Ressa in the Philippines on through to, you know, individuals being targeted by the Thai government with, you know, NSO's uh, surveillance software. Uh, you know, it really is. There's a sort of sense that if the United States can't figure out how to do something on some of these issues, uh, that the rest will suffer. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And I obviously, like, at least on a discourse level, like the pendulum has moved in the complete opposite direction. Like the thing we've been obsessed with talking about the last couple of weeks is how one man can buy a, um, you know, a social media platform and remake it completely to his own designs uh, with no eye at all to the sort of larger uh, social implications of, of what that would mean, which is not to suggest that we should have some sort of government entity that reviews all mergers and acquisitions uh, for, you know, some vague, I mean, who knows, right? But the, the point is like the, the tenor of the last couple of weeks has been one in which basically one, the richest guy in the world just buys a social media platform for like a pl- like to make his own playground and experiment with it in real time, which is sort of like the opposite of like a careful civic tech approach to that would like, you know, obviously Elon Musk, and I've written about this, is not going to design Twitter with the, you know, with Filipino users in mind. Like, why would he? That's like cuts against his entire sensibility. It's not like, yeah, we're, we're like to the extent to which we're experimenting with like new models of governance, we're experimenting with like ones which are like even more kind of like cowboy American <laughs> versions or cowboy South African versions of social media governance, not ones that are, you know, th- that would be uh, sensitive and and careful and you know regulated well a lot there uh, a busy year for you and i'm sure a busy year ahead uh, hopefully we'll have you back on uh, and get to hear about the this next feature i'm particularly interested in the one about uh, surveillance in uh, small cities small towns um, so let's make a date for that and look forward to that moment. Uh, but until then, happy new year, Avi. Yeah, you too, Justin. It's, I'm a longtime fan of the show, so it's awesome to be on. feels like I accomplished something. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you in the new year. Okay, see ya. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thank you for listening and Happy New Year. Tech Policy Press.